research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, I'm Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in the U.S. federal government. And I'm joined by the co-host, as always, uh, Eric Eggers. He's the vice president here at the Government Accountability Institute and author of the 2018 book, Voter Fraud. Fraud is actually the official title. And that's particularly pertinent today because our topic is going to be looking at the issue of voter fraud. We have a very special guest uh, who we will introduce in a moment. But let me just ask you very briefly, what was your biggest takeaway from the book that you wrote in 2018? I think the biggest takeaway from working on the book in 2018, and I think the publisher would agree with it, is that I'm destined to be in the nonprofit business. So uh, (laughs) no, but I think uh, that the the book... (laughs) was uh, a searing uh, insight into the election vulnerabilities and issues of election integrity. Maybe not exactly a huge blockbuster commercial success. No, but the point, the big takeaway is the fact that our election system is wildly vulnerable. Um, You know, everyone sort of acknowledged that. There were bipartisan commissions that would say, no, we've got some issues here. Uh, Absentee or mail-in ballots are the most vulnerable. But basically they say, hey, but the good news is federal elections are never that close, so it won't really matter. And then (laughs) 2020 happens. Right, right. And suddenly the election with the most votes ever cast in the least secure way, we're then instantly told was the most accurate and certified in election history. And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and anybody that had, you know, dared raise questions about it was immediately censored and kicked off of social media. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how they don't want to have this conversation. It's also remarkable to me that by its very nature, this topic leads one to the conclusion that you don't know what you don't know. Right. I mean, they confidently say uh, there was no voter fraud. And then when people raise, I think, very legitimate points uh, uh, that voter fraud took place. We were trying to figure out the scope and the scale of it. Uh, they don't want to have that conversation. Okay, just be careful because we, you know, it's been 42 days since we conducted a treasonous uh, <laughs> podcast. So we don't try, we're trying to get arrested again. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, uh, fortunately today we have a great host, uh, sorry, a great guest. Uh, there's a new film out called 2000 mules, uh, which actually offers up, I think some very compelling evidence that maybe just maybe, uh, there was voter fraud that took place. And joining us today is one of the executive producers of that film, Catherine Engelbrecht. And I'm going to let Eric just briefly introduce her and talk a little bit about because in your 2018 book, Fraud, yeah. you actually talk about Catherine and how she got involved in this. I do talk about Catherine, but I'm also you know married to a female PhD, so I know better than to mansplain somebody else's bio <laughs> with, with, when Catherine Engelbrecht <laughs> can, can talk about it <laughs> well within her, her own ability. But no, I think Catherine's story is um, quite compelling, and I think that's one of the things that's we're so great and happy to have you here because not only do we want to talk about the, the part of the film, but I think your journey, just how you got involved in the election integrity movement is quite fascinating and distinct. So just, I mean, briefly talk about your time as a poll worker and then how that led you to be where you are now. Sure. Well, I, this all happened quite by accident. The funny thing happened the one time I worked at the polls because that very first time uh, I saw problems and this was back in 2010. And, and, and I reasoned at that point 
these are process problems. Surely if government knew, um, if our election officials knew, uh, these were things that, that could be quickly fixed. And so a small group of us uh, took about doing just that. We began to sort of reverse engineer the breakdowns as we saw them and uh, turned those findings over to the county. And uh, that really was the basis of the very first research project that we did that um, began to uh, rattle a lot of cages. And before you know it, we were a national organization because people were calling us from across the country saying, well, if this is if this is what you're seeing in Houston, Texas, uh, let me tell you what we're seeing in Ohio and in, in Florida and in Pennsylvania. Uh, can we work together? And my response then, as now, is sure. We, you know, we're figuring this out as we go. So let's let's do it together. Um, flash forward 12 years, and uh, in the midst of all of that, we became a, a bit of a a bit of a um, uh, eye of the storm for the Obama administration and targeting that occurred, and uh, and all of that. I think under 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 undergirds this this question of what could we be so close to that then in 2010 and now in 2020 and beyond we can't talk about these matters that are process problems broadly our election you know our election system isn't intended to be perpetually broken so why is it and um and anyway that's that's my background and and uh, you know we continue to just just every day put one one foot in front of the other trying to figure this out because it's, there's, there are solutions. Why can't we ever get to the bottom of them? Which I think is really, you know, the question. One of the things I appreciate about the film, by the way, and your approach is you're not making any uh, massive claims that you have evidence that the results of 2020 were overturned. I mean, I think you're very honest in saying we don't know. Uh, explain a little bit of, for those who haven't seen the film, and I would encourage people to watch it. Uh, what exactly are you saying uh, happened in 2020, and what is the evidence you have for the basis of your claims? Sure. Well, when when we uh, began to see in early 2020 so many um, election process laws being changed, standards, codes being changed through either bureaucratic fiat or lawsuit or just general engineered chaos, um, we we took a step back and said, okay, given these new variables in play, uh, where, are, where are new weaknesses being, um, being injected into the system? And one of those we felt like were these privately funded drop boxes. Those were, uh, in our opinion, going to introduce a, a new level of exposure. And so what we did and what you see in the movie is we tried to measure that using technology and specifically using what's referred to as geospatial technology or cell phone movement. And the reason was because we knew that through this mass mail out of ballots, those ballots, if in fact they were going to be exploited in some way, would, we, we reasoned, um, show up in repeated visits to drop boxes. And so using cell phone technology and geofencing, we measured how many times individual, drop, individual cell phones went to drop boxes in, in certain areas. We did this in five jurisdictions. And, and frankly, never thought initially that this would result in a movie. We, the first thing we did in 2021 was turning this over to law enforcement and had law enforcement taken it and, and began to expand those investigations. Uh, there may never have been a 2000 Mules movie, but uh, channel after channel, be it law, law enforcement or, or media, uh, we were not able to get the attention that we knew that this deserved. And so the movie tells the story of how we use this, this, this data and use this process to ultimately um, reveal that, in fact, 
it was a process that was being exploited. And we were able to, through very precise data, uh, point out how many times, in fact, people were repeating these visits and then the nexus between those drop boxes and nonprofits. And, and that's, the, that's the, the heart of the movie. It's, it's a broken process and we take a, a hard look at it. Yeah, people forget just how wildly different the landscape of how we conducted the election in 2020 was compared to just some of the basic tenets of what American democracy has evolved to be. We actually did right. an interview with Molly Hemingway with her book. And one of the points that you know we talked about was that a key to the sanctity of American democracy is when you vote in the ballot booth, it's a democratically um, sterile environment. Right. There's no influence from any political party. There's mm-hmm. laws, in fact, about how close someone can be with any political propaganda or sign like there's a party can't help you fill out the ballot. That's illegal. And Molly Hemingway made the great point that not only is that the law, but we had to fight to make it that like that's a value we strove towards. And so I think even I mean, all your technology is amazing. And I, I think it's a, an ingenious way to kind of try to document just how involved political actors were in the conduction Mm -hmm. of this election, whether it was legal or otherwise. But the point is like that election was completely different. And so when you see different uh, takeaways and, you know, kind of anomalous data that, you know, we could just basking and reflecting on that in and of itself, I think is, is worth doing, but your film goes so much deeper than that. Um, Talk about the nexus between these nonprofits, because the other thing to remember, right, is that through Mark Zuckerberg's funded uh, Center for Technology and Civic Life, you had hundreds of millions of dollars from a nonprofit going to the government in the assistance of also this process. So do you feel like you've seen a connection between these mules and that specific uh, nonprofit funding mechanism? Um, y- yes, but it's, it's not quite as direct as one might expect. Look, okay. I, the, the, the landscape of these nonprofits and the ways in which they were moving ballots and the, the harvesting, or as we call it, trafficking, that's been going on for a long time. Right. Um, the, the technology that we use to prove it, in fact, hasn't been around that long. So this is a, this was a really new, a new look maybe for a first time, but, um, the, the the new the new in, the new injection into all of this, of course, were these these privately funded drop boxes that, as you point out, were not regulated as a mailbox or USPS would normally regulate. The way that that we first came to the realization that the nonprofits were playing a a role, at least in what we were measuring, was was really that the the start of this, and I failed to mention it when I described our project. The start of it all was was incoming calls from our election integrity hotline, and those hotline calls. Uh, some, I mean, we were getting tens of thousands of calls and there were some in each of these jurisdictions that were describing concerning um, activities around nonprofits. So that was really our first tip to say, hey, look at some of these and just see if, if there are patterns there. There may not have been. The data may have just been flatline around those. Um, there is some level of connectedness. And this is, of course, where we are Im- imploring law enforcement to take a closer look. We do have some of the money trail. But we don't have the resources that the state or federal government would have to pull all of this back. So, um, yes, but, but there's no doubt that, that both CARES money and the CTCL Zuckerberg money uh, had a profound impact both on um, 
catalyzing the mass mail out and the, you know, the, the drop points of those uh, unregulated drop boxes. Now you use, I think, a, a really ingenious uh, research tool um, to make this case for the 2000 mules or the fact that this ballot harvesting was taking place. Uh, and that's the use of these so-called geotags that are other names that are applied, but basically it's tracking a cell phone uh, and its movement. Uh, and this is where the critics have tried to sort of latch on and say, well, sure. you know, this stuff is not all that accurate. I mean, I will note, I was, I was doing some research on this before the program that actually, you know, there's, there's lots of evidence uh, that geotags have been used very effectively by the military, by terrorist groups. I ran across an article that back actually in 2007, 15 years ago, a group of Iraqi insurgents used geotags. They actually tracked the cell phones of U.S. military personnel who were riding on Apache helicopters, uh, and they used that technology to actually destroy those helicopters because they could track their movements. So, this is a technology that's been known for a while. It's been used effectively. And the criticism to me seems kind of disingenuous in the sense that, you know, there's no curiosity. There's no sense of, oh, there may actually be something here worth evaluation. They immediately look for uh, the fact that you can't 100% prove something as evidence that it's not true. But I want you to respond to particularly this criticism by critics who are saying that the geo-tracking or the geotags is not a fair or quote-unquote accurate way to actually follow people. Well, I mean, it's it's nonsense. What, what, here's what we've seen. Um, and the, 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 the critics take sort of one of two tacks. The first is they compare what we did to the use of GPS tracking, which is when you're triangulating from cell phone towers. And that is technology that's been around since the early 2000s and really in military um, uses, it's been, it predates that. Um, yes, that, that is uh, less accurate. Uh, GPS data just uh, left sort of in its rawest form uh, is not as precise. That's not the data that we use. Now there's an element of the GPS uh, aspect to our data. But what we used were the data packets coming out of apps, marketing apps, advertising ads. And what where that all kind of ties together is the apps that are on your phone are exacting in the data that they share about the user. And those apps send up signals every few seconds. When you buy as much data as we bought, we sort of took all of the oxygen out of available signals, 10 trillion signals. You can get a very accurate pattern. Just straight out of the gate, it's accurate to a meter, so about 39 inches. But if you, if you really start to run through those cycles of patterns of life and, and continue to refine and refine and refine, you can get it down. You can, I mean, look, the government can get it down to a few centimeters. We can get it down pretty doggone close because of the team that we, um, the team that we pulled together to do this project. So, so the accuracy piece falls apart, but it's also very selective, right? I mean, uh, the, the same groups that are attacking us, the New York Times, WAPO, they celebrated when the same data was used to track the J6 folks, right? Same data, same data. Now, there's, there's interesting observations around all of that, too, because what we know as a practical matter is they moved so quickly with that data, it suggests that, in fact, they had that data before the J6 event and were able to draw those patterns of life in ways that, um, that are very suspect in terms of the time it took to do it. All this to say, though, 
that accuracy isn't disputed. And it's not disputed headline after headline after headline. It's not disputed when the CDC uses it to make sure that people are social distancing six feet apart. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the, the, the continued sort of disingenuous double thing that so often happens. But no, it's exactly right. I mean, if your phone, know, if your phone can tell you if you, which you can opt in to have it like, hey, were you potentially in proximity of anybody that's COVID exposed? Right. The, the advertisers of where we live regularly brag that, hey, no, if you partner with us, we can tell when somebody walks into your store, when they leave your store. I mean, no, this is like, absolutely we would if we ever actually did it, we should do a deep dive on like how much people know about who we are and where we go, because it's insane. And so all uh, this film does it's is take shocking. that data, which everybody oh, else uses yeah, all shocking. the time. Yeah, you're using data everybody else uses. You're just <laughs> using it to tell a story they don't like. And so I think that that's that's, right. that story that's right. is that, I mean, talk about just, so you guys went through these 4 million minutes of video and you identified, I mean, just because I don't know that anybody totally understands who are the 2,000 mules and just in the context of the 2020 election, how many votes potentially do you feel like they delivered? And here's why it matters, right? Because we're, we're not saying these are fake ballots, but there are laws and there are laws, including okay. states like Georgia, where third party harvesting or collection delivery of ballots was not legal. And so you do sort of talk about illegal. I mean, it becomes an illegal ballot. Now, is it illegal on the threshold of law enforcement? No. I mean, that's one thing anybody that's involved in election integrity movement will say is that that's exactly the problem is law enforcement They've got assaults, they've got larceny, they've got like financial crime. So election integrity, it's just not on the radar. It's not high on the priority list. And so that's why you're not going to get a response from law enforcement. But what, yeah, what do the two, who are the 2000 mules and how many potential votes do you feel like they swung? Sure. So in, in laying out our, our hypotheses, what we tried to do was create a threshold that was so outside the, the norm, so anomalous in terms of um, uh, comparison to a, t- a typical pattern that it stood distinct. And, and ultimately where we made that cut was, is, is individual devices that went 10 or more times to drop boxes during the election period and to a certain number of NGOs. And we settled that average at five. It's a little different state to state. But, but if you didn't do both of those things, you were not included in our study. So you could have gone to a thousand drop boxes, but no NGOs, and you wouldn't be in our study. You could have gone to a thousand NGOs and nine drop boxes, and you wouldn't be in our study. And and by the, by doing that, we felt like that's a that's something that we could um, wrap our arms around and really take a deep dive into those patterns. Um, it's also why we know that we've just scratched the the, the surface on what's really happening here. Uh, the what we try to point out in, in the film is that this is a, a one level. Look, this is a thousand front war. Our elections are porous on so many fronts. So this was one that we wanted to focus in on and, and try, to do, try to do this with not just the data, but ultimately we tried to um, show this on screen with a surveillance video. This is a guidance, federal guidance, from, uh, for, for any jurisdiction that was using these drop boxes, was to put a camera on. Now, what we know as a practical matter is that most jurisdictions didn't do that. But those that did, we were trying to get open records uh, via open records. We were trying to get that data and, and video. And now, yes, we do have, I think it's over 5 million minutes now. We just did another very broad sweep for the data. But I want to be clear, we have not reviewed all 4 million minutes, now 5 million minutes of data. What we attempted to do was match 
via the the timestamps in our pings, try to match that to the timestamps in the video to move more quickly. I cannot stress enough how poorly composed this surveillance video is. It is it is not a it's not a quick one to one. Hey, the ping went off at you know two o'clock in the morning. Let's look at two o'clock in the morning in the video. There are all manner of corrections that have to be made for that. And so what you see in the video, and then, and then even, even beyond that, what you see is most of the cameras themselves were not well-placed. And so if the intent was really to watch what was going on at the Dropbox, big fail, big fail all across the country. One of the reasons you see in the movie, a select sort of it seems like you're seeing many of the same drop boxes again, is that that's the video that you can actually put on a big screen and it holds its composure in the picture. Um, the, the the vast majority, you see sort of shadowy figures, you see people kind of dart through a corner of the screen. And even though you know because of the ping that that's who you're looking for, it's a mule, it, it leaves it very sort of anticlimactic on the big screen when you don't see what you expect, right? From all of the you know, we, we are a culture that's been spoon fed, uh, you know, blockbuster movies and crime stories that show that show the crime in technicolor. That's not what you see in these videos. The videos are pretty much garbage, but we are very excited about what's coming next, which is this effort to what we're, what we're referring to as pulling the ripcord. Because once we pull this ripcord, the goal is letting all of this data be reviewed by Americans. And plus all the new data, the new video that we're getting in, there's so much more, so many more stories that are going to be told. No, I think that's very exciting. And uh, look, I think the great value in what you've done here is uh, you have uh, increased the volume of information that people are having about a very important conversation. I'm right. one that doesn't think there's a lot of value in trying to relitigate 2020. I think this should be about looking ahead and ensuring this November, November of 2024 and ahead that a lot of these things that, that, you know, there was suspicious activity going on that we could prevent it. So the, 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 the question is, Catherine, you know, there's been a lot of reform. Uh, Florida passed a, a, a pretty good uh, election reform law that Georgia has done the same. Well, and, and just to, to piggyback on the point before we ask Catherine about it, but mm-hmm. I, I think to your point about the value and what this is doing moving forward, think about the pushback that a state like Georgia got. Yes. When they, as part of their election integrity law that they passed, right? I mean, one of the things is they're going to dramatically limit the number of drop boxes specifically that can be used. And so if, if one of the things this film shows is, hey man, drop boxes are basically kind of portals for potentially illegal delivery, collection, right. everything else of votes. They Their bill went from 38 would be in Fulton County from the last election to eight. And Catherine may not know this and the listeners of this podcast may not know, but we've done previous podcasts where we talked about, we actually did some analysis on these drop boxes and the way, I mean, even things where like they put them. where they put the drop boxes in Fulton oh, County yeah. in the election in 2020, right? Of the 38, 35 of them were put in precincts that went to Hillary Clinton in 2016, mm-hmm. right? So Democrat leaning districts, yeah. 17 of those 35 went to heavy uh, Democrat areas, there were no drop boxes in Fulton County that went to heavy Trump areas, right? In right. fact, only three went to things that even marginally went for Trump. Yeah. So uh, the way in 2016, so we know there's been problems with the way, but yet none of that uh, 
prevented the pushback, even like calling for corporate boycotts. As yeah, part of corporate boycotts. And yet we had this massive turnout yeah, right, recently right. with the primaries. But I guess the question for you, Catherine, and also Eric, I want you to uh, to dive into it. There have been these uh, electoral reform bills that have passed. There's been a lot of interest in this. Uh, is that enough or what else actually, if we're going to look forward and not just look to the past and we're going to try to prevent this, I know it's very, very hard outside of prosecutions, uh, to eliminate this activity because people are always going to try to find ways around the rules. But what are some things that we can do in terms of electoral reform that have not yet been done, uh, that, that needs to be part of the agenda and conversation right now, Catherine? Well, Peter, the first thing I'd say is, look, I agree with you. The, the value in looking at 2020 and, and continuing to pick it apart, if you will, um, and, and what we're doing with Ripcord and whatnot, is it steals, it steals in people's minds. It sort of burns into uh, their network that, that the problem is real. And you can see it locally. You can see it locally in the voter rolls. You can see it locally in the, in the video that's available. And so I think there's value in it for that purpose. But moving forward... The big things that we need to focus on as a country, number one, first and foremost, get the voter rolls accurate. There's no reason in the world that we have as inaccurate a data set as we do currently. Um, there's Private industry would go bankrupt if, the, <laughs> if, if that is the kind of data that was depended upon by, let's say, Amazon or, or an, another you know, high-profile service-oriented uh, offering the there's no reason you can you can resolve identity residency and citizenship in real time what we lack here is the political will in getting it done so clean up the voter rolls second thing is end the mass mail out of ballots and and i know that there are so many pushes afoot to expand them to to making vote from home uh this sort of very cozy sentimental experience it is rife with opportunities for subversion so Stop the mass mail out of ballots, remove those drop boxes. And then the last thing that we are emphasizing is make election fraud penalties, pack a punch. And, and Eric, I think it was you that, that, that observed that, you know, when you look at the, the desk full of crimes that have to be prosecuted, election fraud is low on that totem pole. But here we are, right? I mean, this is year upon year, decade upon decade, we've sort of pushed those files to the side and said, well, you know, it was just one vote. It was just, it was just a handful of pride. We are, we are letting this slip away um, because we aren't willing to roll up our sleeves and do the very hard work. And it's all processed. The, the fraud has been institutionalized. I think that this is a rallying point for our country. We should be able to agree on a solid process based on what private industry is doing and using them as best practices and just do it. But we can't keep on with what we currently have. It is broken. It is antiquated. Eric, you said it correctly. Groups prior to 2020 were, you know, government accountability board all over the place saying, oh, the, the system's broken. We must do something about it. But yet same same variables in play. It, it you know was all swept under the rug in 2020. We got to get serious. Same variables in play and only for the math people out there. Some of the coefficients were a lot larger, you know, and so uh, <laughs> and, and it just but it, yeah, we're still told that the equation equals the same thing. And obviously it doesn't. Right. The other thing I would point out too is I think what you got to guard against is people looking at 2020 as a template of a business model to execute moving forward. And specifically, I remember after the election, I think it was um, 
yeah, it was sometime after the election of 2020 in Florida, a newly elected supervisor of elections in, I believe, Palm Beach County uh, or potentially Broward County tweeted out that they were going to implement something called adopt a precinct for nonprofits. So basically allow nonprofit organizations to take charge of various precincts and and to sort of subcontract out to them. And if one of the problems, right, is the further you get removed from a ballot box, from the further you get from a voter putting their vote into the ballot box and then having the trained election workers actually processing those ballots and the more problems you run into. And so actually, I think you got to give Governor Ron DeSantis some credit because in response, I think, to that idea as part of Florida's election integrity reform bill, they said, no, 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 we're not doing that. Like there will be the only election officials will be in charge of actually conducting elections. So uh, so I think that's that's really what I think has to happen. Um, You've got to have you've got to create a context where people know that what happened in 2020 was rife with problematic issues. So anybody that raises the question is not a treasonous, mm-hmm. you know, terrorist that's trying to overthrow the government. They're actually trying to improve confidence in the government moving forward because it's actually at an all time low. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable to me that that uh, with our elections, the stakes are so high the people that dismiss and say, oh, no, no, nobody would want to systematically try to skew an election. Yeah, who would want to fraudulently? Yeah, who would want to do that? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's just totally ridiculous. The motivation is there. And I think as the film shows and Eric's researchers showed, there's some real issues and problems with how ballots are being handled. So, Catherine, for people that are interested, and again, I commend people that they should go see the film, where can they actually get a copy of this? Uh, you can find more information on our website, truethevote.org. It's also in AMC theaters uh, broadly, and you can also find it on the Salem Now platform. So we thank you, Catherine Engelbrecht, for joining us today. Uh, I would recommend to people to watch the film, and I think Catherine would say the same thing. Watch it critically. You don't have to embrace every single thing that it says. Look at it critically, and if there's something that you are opposed to, have evidence for opposing it. Don't simply oppose it because you don't like the conclusions that it awfully leads to. So watch 2000 Mules. Be sure to pick up Eric's book, Fraud. Uh, and thank you for joining us uh, on The Drill Down. You can find previous episodes at thedrilldown.com. And thank you for joining us. Until next time. 